If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In this intimate episode, we interview Alistair McGrath, exploring the relationship between science and certainty. He charts his path from atheism to Christianity and discloses how his faith is consistent with his scientific beliefs. Alistair McGrath is a theologian, an intellectual historian, a scientist and a public intellectual. He currently holds the Andreas Idris Professorship in Science and Religion and the Faculty of Theology at the University of Oxford. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Alistair McGrath to Philosophy for Our Times. My name is Alistair McGrath and I'm the Andrews Idris Professor of Science and Religion at Oxford University. So you studied science at university, partly out of a desire for certainty. You wrote in your article for II News. How did the discovery of the history and philosophy of science change your mind about how much certainty there actually is in science? When I was studying science in the sixth form at school, I, I took the view science was the most reliable way we had of understanding our world, and not simply that it was reliable, that it gave us certain knowledge of things. And I like the idea, you know, we all want to be sure about things. Then I read a book by Bertrand Russell, The History of Western Philosophy, and he said this, and it made me rethink. He said, the task of philosophy is to teach us how to live with uncertainty without being paralyzed by hesitation. And, and you know, Bertrand Russell wasn't stupid. You know, he clearly had seen that there was an issue here that in many areas of life we had to in effect recognize we couldn't have certainty and that really opened the way to thinking about this more so I looked at the history and philosophy of science and Russell was right you know in effect science is very very good at pointing us towards good answers but didn't always get us there but even if there isn't like a hundred percent certainty within science does that mean that you would put more certainty on like you'd see certain evidence or certain uh, scientific narratives as being more certain than other narratives given that it's more it's an empirical yes. thing yeah. I think science at the moment is dominated by the philosophy of inference to the best explanation and that means you look at all the observations you say what are the possible explanations and which seems to be the best and you can usually work that out the simplest or the most elegant but the best isn't always the right 
and the right may be something that hasn't come along yet. So there's always this element of hesitation, this element of uncertainty, this element of provisionality in science, which means that science is on a journey, and we're at this point in the journey, and in 10 years' time, be a different point, and things may look different. There are obvious conflicts between the narratives that science and religion have on certain issues, for instance, with the creation story. How do you reconcile the two? Well, there are indeed some conflicts between science and religion, for example, in relation to creation narratives. But you've got to bear in mind that if I was talking to you 100 years ago, that we'd be talking about the scientific consensus that the world has always existed. There's, there's no such thing as a beginning. And now, of course, we're talking about the beginnings of the universe, and you would see immediately that while a scientific narrative of origination and the religious narrative of creation are not the same, there's kind of an interesting space there for a dialogue. But you're right. I mean, there are real tensions between science and religion, as there are between every intellectual discipline. I see those as being creative, you know, they open up really good questions for discussion. So do you embrace one narrative or the other, or you're just interested in the dialogue between them? I try to inhabit both the scientific and the religious narrative. And that means that sometimes I step into one, sometimes I step into the other, but I'm always asking, how can we bring these into conversation? How, how might they enrich each other? So if you like, it's all about trying to develop a bigger picture of life than either of those can give on their own. And are there certain current scientific kind of accepted truths or theories that you are a bit skeptical of? I think the model by which we calculate the age of the universe is open for radical revision. There are so many issues with it, and basically at the moment we all think the universe is about nearly 14 billion years old, but that's not based on observation. That's about observations being interpreted in a theoretical context. That theoretical context, I think, is going to change over the next 20 years. And then we may have a different age for our universe, which is very exciting. It's very interesting. On a more personal level, you used to be an atheist and then you converted to Christianity. What sparked this transformation, this change of mind? Well, I used to be an atheist when I was in high school, and I was studying science, and it was really uh, wonderful. But I took the view that science and religion were irreconcilably opposed. And also, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and in Northern Ireland, back in the 1960s, we had religious violence. And so it seemed to me, if there was no religion, then A, certain knowledge, B, no violence. That, that's a no-brainer. So it seemed to me just obvious that that was the way things were. I think I began to realize that things weren't quite that simple. For example, studying the philosophy of science made me realize that actually in many areas of life we have to make decisions we cannot prove to be right, for example in ethics, in politics and so on. I began to realize actually maybe, maybe faith was something you had to get used to because there are a lot of things you just cannot prove and yet they are so important. That didn't convert me or anything, but it kind of indicated it was a bit more complicated than I had originally thought. And so I began this process of exploration, which actually made me realize that atheism, in my view, wasn't as productive and interesting as perhaps Christianity was. So I, I moved from one to the other, but I don't in any way criticize atheism. I just say I think I found something better, and I'm happy to have a conversation about this. So what did you find in Christianity that was more productive and better for you? That's a very good question. What I found in Christianity was a big picture of life, this idea that you stand back and there is this bigger picture of which each individual part is important. And that gave me a framework for integration, science, 
religion, ethics, the quest for meaning, the quest for understanding. These are all part of something that is, in effect, one and the same. And if you like, it gave me this, this, this unified vision, which helped me to see my own existence and also everybody else in a, in a new way. So if you like, it was an expansion of my intellectual horizons. And uh, you mentioned your past view that you saw the violence in Northern Ireland as um, being sparked by religion. Have you changed your mind about what actually sparked that violence? I think although back in the 1960s I thought this is religion that's causing all this violence, I think when you look at it more closely, there are clearly political and economic issues there. And maybe religion is being used as a badge for some deeper unease that gave rise to this violence. Do you think that's the case with other uh, forms of violence that involve religion, for instance, in other areas of the world, like with terrorist groups using Islam? Is it similarly the case that you, you see that as just a badge being used for other other actual reasons for why this is happening? I think people are always looking for a higher motivation for doing things. And it can be religion or it can be an ideology like Marxism or Nazism. And so my concern really is to ensure that people are able to hold political views or religious views, but not ones that lead them to the kind of extremist actions that we're seeing in our world today. I don't know how we do that, but it needs to be done. And actually, there's no necessary link between religion and violence. It, it seems to happen. And if we can find some ways of breaking that link, I'd be a very happy man. And similarly to the question on science and what you're skeptical of in current science, are you skeptical of certain ideas within Christianity itself? I think I'm skeptical about everything in the sense that I always want to know why does anybody think that? What are the reasons for thinking that? And, and some beliefs I think can be challenged. Others you challenge them and think actually that seems quite robust. In the case of Christianity, I mean, you're always saying is this really the best way of making sense of the New Testament or the life of Christ or whatever it is. So there's always that critical spirit. But you have to kind of way realize you can't be a perpetual skeptic because you, you, you don't believe anything. So you, what you're looking for is always what seem to be the most reliable beliefs that you can use as a basis for meaningful existence in this world. So if you were to give an example of something you're skeptical of in Christianity, or there isn't anything within that narrative that... Um... I think there are always things in Christianity, or indeed in any worldview, that you're going to ask hard questions about. And for me, I'd want to ask, for example, whether the idea that you find in so many Christian thinkers that God cannot suffer because God is perfect, well, I mean, where does that come from? I mean, it seems to me that actually God cares for this world so much that God is actually affected by the world he created suffering in this way. So there's, there's a conversation that, that has begun and I feel quite strongly about it. So you've talked about the amazing impact that religion has in helping you kind of lead a more productive kind of life and have a, a worldview that helps you move forward. Would you see this as a rational or kind of irrational use of, of religion? And to what extent is religion rational in your, in your mind? I think the question of rationality in religion is really interesting, as indeed the question of rationality as a whole is really important. One of the things I've realized um, through my own research, but also just through reflection on this, is actually each area of life, whether it's science or ethics or religion, really develops its own distinct rationality, its way of approaching the world, its way of formulating questions, its ways of actually getting answers. And what I've realized is that each area of our inquiry into the meaning of life or the way the world works 
uses different methods. And therefore, although this may sound strange, I use one rationality when I'm doing science, another when I'm thinking about ethics, another when I'm thinking about religion. And I kind of see these as necessary because of their the actual identity of the topics. And the question really is how I can bring these back together. Each method, in effect, give me something I can build up into a bigger picture of life. So how are these methods different and what do they have in common then? I think these research methods are different in that they're trying to relate to the objects under investigation. So for example, in physics, you have a very great emphasis on the importance of the empirical method as we look at our world. In ethics, you're asking, how can we live a good life? How, what, what is good? How do we ask those questions? In religion, very often, it's what is the meaning of life and how do we become fulfilled as people? Now, these actually interlock these questions, you can imagine, but that you get to the answers by different means. So science is not going to be able to tell us what is good or indeed what the meaning of life is any more than religion could tell us how far the moon is away or what the value of Planck's constant is. So it's a question of, in effect, recognizing each area has its own distinct contribution to make, but also so its limits. How do we bring them together to give us something that's meaningful and helpful? Is there any idea you've recently changed your mind on? That's a good question, isn't it? I used to think that there was this thing called reason, which was absolutely homogenous and irrespective of your cultural context or what you were doing, it was the same thing. I think in, in the last five years, I've realized it's not that simple, that actually reason is culturally embedded. It engages in different questions in different ways. And in many ways, the question is, how can we arrive at a framework for allowing us to reason cross-culturally? It's a difficult one, but it's an important one. And is there a, a thinker that has influenced you a lot and would you be able to present one of their ideas in just under two minutes? I've been influenced by many thinkers and it's so wonderful to have this, but I'm going to single out Mary Midgley, the wonderful English philosopher who died recently and is sorely missed, I have to say. She was a character, a really interesting person, but also had some wonderful ideas. And she says, look, reality is so complex. We need multiple maps to try and make sense of its different aspects. You know, there's one map from science, there's another from ethics, another from religion, and we've got to try and do superimpose those maps and get the most we can out of them. I think that's a wonderful idea. I'd love if, unfortunately I can't do this if she were here, to ask her how do we draw those maps. But I know what she means and I think it's helpful. Drawing maps, getting them right and then putting them together and seeing the bigger picture that emerges from those individual maps. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.